0: Good afternoon, this is Candace Pedraza and this is Just the News, a weekly podcast in which I try to do an interview with somebody uh, on something that I feel that the public needs to be educated a bit more on just to have a better understanding of each other, of community and of ourselves. So this week I did an interview with my friend Jenna Lawson, she does amazing work in Rochester, specifically the Emma Beachwood communities there, in terms of affordable housing and speaking to community leaders in terms of the needs of residents there so without further ado i'll let jenna introduce herself in our interview and here is everything that went down this afternoon in our conversation on affordable housing um okay so i'll start off with the first question so explain your role you know what do you do uh in the area how does it pertain to affordable housing just talk a little bit about yourself
1: yeah. So my name is Jenna Lawson. I'm a housing project manager at Connected Communities. So we are a community-based nonprofit that serves two neighborhoods in Rochester, New York, the Emma and Beechwood neighborhoods. Uh, they have a poverty rate of 42% and a child poverty rate of 51 or 57%, I'm sorry, um, which is about equal to Flint, Michigan, just to kind of give you some perspective of, like, the community and demographics that we're talking about. Um, So my job is to kind of vet and arrange affordable housing and mixed-income housing for both rent and for ownership in our neighborhood in accordance with community will. So that's not only new builds, but it's also, like, rehabilitation of existing units. And thinking about things like who gets to be a landlord in our community, how do we support a good landlord, how do we support wealth building opportunities for residents through property ownership. So that's kind of the realm I think of. I also think of things like gentrification and displacement is a major component of my work in trying to prevent that. So what can you do to develop a community that has suffered from generations of systemic disinvestment both from the private market and the government um, and create a community that actually benefits the people who live there now instead of creating a beautiful community that's no longer affordable.
0: Awesome. Okay. And I don't know if you could explain a little bit of the process that you go through or you guys all go through in terms of selecting who you think would be a good landlord as opposed to a bad landlord. And I guess you could also define bad and good. I know what a bad landlord is. Know.
1: <laughs> you know it when you see it, I guess. But um, so I, I can't just stop someone because they're a, a bad landlord automatically. I don't have that power. I'm not a god. But what I can do is be system, or like really strategic in what investments um, we choose to make and how we make it easier. So for example, we're starting this new program called our landlord fund where for landlords who are doing their best to maintain upkeep their property, keep rent affordable, um, we're offering up to $7,000 per property in rehabilitation funds in exchange for keeping the rent affordable at 50% area median income and um, offering the tenant automatic option to renew for five years. So for people who honestly are trying to do their part to own up to their role in the community ecosystem, I try to work to reward and steward that and connect them to resources. Versus a bad landlord, my number one concern is to be an advocate for the tenant. So that can mean reporting the property to um, code enforcement through the city. It can be teaching the tenant connecting them to our our citywide tenant union who does amazing work. Um, And they can actually unionize all of the tenants of all of the different properties that this landlord owns across multiple properties and do a rent strike or do a press conference and really bring attention. So in one case, there's a 45 unit or 48 unit um, apartment building in our community that was owned by a very negligent landlord. Uh, bought three big properties totaling like 120 units for like $3 million in 2015 and let it go completely to hell. The people were living in terrible conditions. They still kind of are to an extent because we're working with a new developer to actually keep those people housed there but temporarily, um, you know, just transition them into quality housing while rehabilitation of the building takes place. So that's one intervention that really came through like tenant self-advocacy and also kind of our role in trying to line up a developer that could actually help these people stay in their homes. We're looking into seeing if we can develop that and do a cooperative ownership model or a co-op. So those are the types of actions that I, as like a community-based organization representative, can take to try to, help the good and weed out or at least, like, intervene on behalf of tenants in a bad situation. Okay.
0: And I guess as it pertains to affordable housing, people having access to it that may not have had access to it before, like, actually good quality affordable housing, like what you're describing that you're trying to get, does that correlate with generating the wealth? Is that where that comes into play, where people are then able to do the things that they would not have been able to do before financially?
1: Yeah, I think it, it it's about creating a stepping stone path because not everybody's goal will be home ownership. But, of course, um, if you can limit the amount that they have to spend on rent um, through sort of like not just leaving them to the whims of public market housing, um, then they're able to realize reallocate that money to something that they find more important. but also save up for home ownership. I know plenty of people who live in Warfield Square, which is one of our um, affordable housing communities in Emma, that their big plan is to like use this subsidy so that they can get their finances right. Um, work on credit repair, and become, um, like, credit-worthy to become first-time home buyers. But if there's no such property that's affordable to them or quality or isn't a total gut job that's going to need a ton of work, then they can save up that money. But if there's no market for them to go to, then they're going to be limited in that way. So you also have to think about not just rental opportunities, but then how do you actually bridge the gap to make homeownership a real option for people who want it. It's literally a lottery system um, that ranks people based on different abilities, ages, income. Um, There was one that if you, let's say you were um, rehousing to Rochester from Puerto Rico because of Hurricane Maria, you get put to the top of the list. But still, um, those lotteries don't open very often. So it opened in 2019 in December. It was open for three weeks. Before then, it was open in 2016. And they go through the process, and they don't accept everybody in the lottery system. So they could get 40,000 applications. They'll accept 10,000 people to the waiting list, and then they will slowly weed through that waiting list depending on the amount of HUD funding allocated to the city for that year or quarter. So even the people at the local housing authority don't know exactly how many vouchers they'll be able to issue and they can't, they don't know when they'll open up the lottery again until they get through that first waiting list.
0: That's like pretty surprising. I mean, not surprising, but I just, I feel like there should be more transparency in that type of process in terms of this is the number of vouchers we're going to have so you now know that you need to do X,Y,Z in order to get this application in out like that. I don't
1: yeah. know. It's not <laughs> merit-based. It's not based on your diligence, and even that rating system only comes into effect after they've picked the people that will move from the lottery to um, the waiting list. So you could check every single one of those boxes but just not be one of the people who are randomly computer-generated, automatically selected to go onto the waiting list. It has nothing to do with your situation, your family, how much you deserve it, how much you would benefit from it. It's literally a matter of chance.
0: It's unfortunate that something that is kind of a necessary <laughs> right, everyone should have affordable housing. Everyone deserves the right to a home, in my opinion.
1: No, I. that's definitely the the ethos I operate out on. If you start from the assumption that everybody and I mean everybody deserve like housing is a human right then you're kind of able to look at the system and see the gaps more fluidly because there will be landlords that will tell you uh, like based on why they evicted someone and totally fairly to them. They completely destroyed the place. They started a small fire. Cops were there every night and no matter how hard or difficult one tenant may be When you evict them, they still need somewhere to go, no matter, you know, what their situation is, why they did it, what they have diagnosed or undiagnosed, or what sort of, you know, personal challenges they're dealing with. They deserve to have somewhere to go.
0: Right. Um, Do you know how many people that, I guess, in Rochester or in the Emma Beachwood area and neighborhoods, how many people need affordable housing or how many people have applied just numbers in terms of just the need?
1: Yeah. So, um, I can tell you like the average median income, um, people are on average rent burden. So the average rent cost in our neighborhood is $808. And that is, um, 41% of the area median income for our neighborhood. So the average Emma and Beachwood resident is cost burden. That doesn't mean everybody, but that just means like if you're thinking about what is the need, yeah, like most people, most people could benefit from it, but that doesn't mean that it's available to everybody. And the way that like uh, area median income is generated to define what affordable means, it actually takes into account the entire Monroe County. So it's taking all of the wealthy suburbs into account. So They say that our area median income is like $73,000. But if you look at the city's median income, it's $31,000. So already, like, you're at less than 50% of the area median income is literally the average of what people who actually live in the city are making.
0: And that's, like, what they're basing their findings on. Like, oh, yeah. well, we don't need that much affordable housing or that much money to go into it because look at how much money, on average, this whole area <laughs> is making. Yeah,
1: it's totally nuts. They're, like, literally, like, weighing the stats incorrectly. I mean, the good news by then is that, like, more people are seen as income qualifying for, like, a 60% area median income unit. But the bad news is, like there's no way to actually fill that need when you're operating out of the idea that like a normal person walking down the street has a household that makes $73,000.
0: Yeah, no, that, and I definitely get that concept because like in Manhattan, for example, or I guess the city in general, I know that the average income has to be upwards of a hundred thousand plus a year, just because you have midtown Manhattan, you have lower Manhattan, you have, financial district residents people that work in these high income jobs they usually stay in the city especially if they're younger and i feel like that definitely skews it because from my own lived experience living in the bronx i know that people in the bronx aren't on average making enough to afford living in the city right yeah so that, yeah, no, I definitely get that. Um, you mentioned the low-income housing tax credit. Can you explain that a little bit more, the alternatives to it, why it's not super helpful or ways that it is?
1: I think the biggest thing I try to just bring it back to is that it is one tool for affordability. It's not the be-all, end-all. You can definitely overuse it, and there's definitely huge drawbacks to it. So, um the low-income housing tax credit got started in 1986. Basically, before then, the government actually owned all public housing. That's why it was called public housing because it's owned by the government. That is extremely um, cost burdening on a government. It doesn't make money. That's the point of it. Is like your income from owning property is. What you receive in rent minus everything, all the staff, all the maintenance, all the um, utilities that it takes to upkeep a building. So when you subsidize it, you're getting less in rent, but you still have to pay the same in maintenance. So it's not like an a income-generating tool. And it's not designed to be, but the government was like, oh, my God, we're sinking. We need to somehow in, incite private investment in affordable housing. So they're like, okay, who has money? banks have money, banks pay taxes. What if we could get banks to give us their money so that they could pay less in taxes? So how that actually works is the developer, so the person who builds and usually manages the property, says, okay, I want to build a property here. And the government says, okay, how much is it going to cost? And they say, this much, a million dollars. And they say, okay, well, we'll give you uh, usually a 9% tax credit um, so that's like just straight up money off your taxes that you don't have to pay. And the developer is like, great, I can't use that. But I do know someone who can and who's in a much higher tax bracket than me. And it's the wealthiest bank you've ever heard of in your life. And the bank said, oh, my God, great. We will literally buy the tax credits from you for, oh, so it's a dollar of tax credits. We'll give you 75 cents for that. Because um, the tax credits are going to be given to me over the course of 10 years. And so, like, you know, the present value of money diminishes over time. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. That's part of the thinking of it. So the banks are actually, like, straight up turning a profit on this because they're paying a dollar less in taxes for only a $0.75 contribution. So they're literally making money and paying less in taxes. But the public benefit is now between that and getting uh, like a bank loan, the project is financially feasible. So the banks get all the money off their tax credits for doing that. The developer has enough money to pay the builders and to actually finance this project. Usually it's between 70 and 90 cents. Sometimes it'll exceed a dollar if a bank has to invest in a certain amount of affordable housing as a requirement to operate in a state or as a penalty for previous abuses like discriminatory lending. The number one problem with it is they pay banks that don't deserve this money. They're rich. They don't need it. Um, The projects don't change with the community. They're pretty much set. You can sort of refinance and think about what needs repairs in like year 15 or year 40, but it's, it's not necessarily that much in community control once you get the go ahead. Um, the property management is not guaranteed to be quality or active if the developer doesn't actually have, like, a mission focus or a nonprofit background. So, that, well, like I said, there's one tool. You can definitely oversaturate them, and that can damage the surrounding community. So that's kind of why I um, advocate for mixed income. Yeah, it's one strategy. You don't want to use it too much. It has its drawbacks. The community is not receiving any of that, usually any of those dollars for actually like being the contractor or the developer. They're just, and, oh, this is the other part, because of guidelines of who gets in, you can't say, well, we're going to build it in this community for the people who live in this community. You can say it's similar to the section eight. We're going to build this and then we're going to do a lottery of everybody who lives in Rochester to see who gets to live in here. And yes, we can try to promote it, especially to, the people in our neighborhood, but because the need is so great, there's no way to weed out or disqualify people from other areas from applying.
0: Yeah. I feel like that lottery system in the city, at least in New York city is also a little bit flawed in that way because anyone can truly apply for those apartments. And what ends up happening a lot of the time is mm-hmm. that with the lottery system, they're eight, they, are they they will pick your name, but then they do like background checks. They do, they kind of just try to figure out if you'll be a good tenant. And a lot of the times what ends up happening is that a lot of transplants, for example, from other states that are maybe coming to New York City for jobs, coming to New York City Mm -hmm. for school, things like that, are able to get those apartments over New York City residents who are low income, who definitely need it. Um, And there's just a ton of qualifiers. I don't know if Mm -hmm. in Rochester as well there are those qualifiers too, where I know in the city sometimes certain apartments require – you live with an elderly person, <laughs> things like that.
1: There definitely are, and I think that kind of points to a need that can sometimes be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other problem with these um, projects is you have to make them financially feasible, so they still don't usually serve, like, the least of us, if that makes sense. So you you need to still generate enough from rental incomes, even though they're subsidized, to pay back your loans and pay your developer fee and your management fee so that the developer actually receives their own monetary benefit. So I can't do a project with like 20% AMI unless I balance it out and put somebody who makes 100% of the area median income in there. And if I did that, that 100% 100 AMI unit is not subsidized at all because you can't, it's no longer a low income housing unit. So I don't get any money for the construction or maintenance of that unit.
0: And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, I know that you had mentioned to me and to, you know, our friend group chat (laughs) with Jared, um, a little bit about that police station that was being built and the money that was being allocated towards that could have also been allocated, I believe you had mentioned, to affordable housing projects i'm not sure if i'm getting that wrong but there was something related to that police station
1: so it's a complicated issue and i i actually it couldn't be um which is something that i think some of our like public figures and community leaders got wrong there because the way that it was being financed was in 12 million dollars of bonds that were specifically written for that purpose and are only available for, like, public safety. So when people said, like, what would you spend $16 million on? Wouldn't you spend it in education or wouldn't you spend it on this? That wasn't really a fair question to the people because that's not actually how the funding worked. and I really hate when people give, like, a community fake choices, like, if you're not going to actually entertain Mm -hmm. it. It also brings up the concept of how um, cities use... Uh, the Brownfield cleanup program to do economic development and just to do development generally. So that um, site where the project will still be, it it really can't be allocated for any other thing. Um, We can kind of negotiate what percentage should be community space, but in all likelihood, unless um, it's completely overturned because it already passed in our council, um, It's going to be some sort of police station um, complete with, you know, holding cells and everything. That was a contaminated site. It used to be a gas station. Um, A developer applied for um, Brownfield Cleanup Program dollars, which is a voluntary program where you receive a subsidy from the state government in order to remediate a a, um, contaminated spot. So they were like, okay, great, we can use this to subsidize the construction of a police station. So that's just saying, like, okay, so the community was suffering from, like, a contaminated place, and we decided to use that to advance our goals on where a police station should be, which is a platform that our mayor ran on of bringing back exactly. community policing by bringing back neighborhood um, substations. So she was probably trying to make good on that on that campaign goal that she ran on in 2013.
0: Um, and what was, I guess, your role in spreading awareness on that? I know that you attend hearings and speak to the community directly a lot more often than I'm sure people would be able to, in a way, I mean, in terms of, like, your involvement. And
1: I just want to bring up that that's a privilege, to be able to self-advocate or even advocate for a community that you work in and love. Um, You have to have Mm -hmm. childcare. you often have to have transportation, you have to have free time, you can't be working, you have to know about it, which, like, you can talk about how Like, information is spread and who usually knows about things that are happening. And even in these days where you can, like, call in on your phone or else get on Zoom, either you need an Internet connection or you needed to know that it was happening and even how to dial a phone in the specific way to get onto a Zoom call that people who are less tech savvy, like, wouldn't be able to know. So um, I truly believe in... Communities know what they want and what's best for them, and it's not about my personal belief of what I think about policing, but it is about community will and, like, demonstrating a higher level of community engagement and consent before instituting Uh, whatever project you believe should be there so I think if the community is in favor and there definitely have been people in the community that are in favor of neighborhood policing they think this could be a good way so we actually get to know who the police are they aren't just random people we'll start to know them as individuals and as officers and if that's the way that the community feels like amazing do that that's wonderful But I don't think that level of engagement and consent has actually been demonstrated at this time, which is why um, it's kind of been rolled back and brought to public attention in that way.
0: I know that you had mentioned, and I wasn't sure if it was related to money that could have been provided, but you're explaining that it was just always going to be for that type of project.
1: (laughs) I mean, you certainly could have written um, bond a bond application to the government, which is basically like very low interest loan, like the lowest right. interest loan you could have. Um, you could have written it mm-hmm. for something else, sure, but at that point, it had already been written, and the only thing the bonds could have been allocated towards was that. So when, like, people were saying it should go to education, it should go to housing, that's not fair because well, that's not been. the real place. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah could have been something earlier, but at this stage, unless you want to throw those bombs away, that's all it could be.
0: How do you think that it would be best for people to get involved in their community at to the degree of affordable housing or advocating for that type of funding? How would one get involved?
1: Um, so... I'll bring it I'll start by bringing it back to a question you asked about like alternatives to low-income housing tax credits so one of the things you could advocate for in your community is a community benefits agreement which is a legally binding contract between the community and the developer which can be for housing but also for you know retail any sort of commercial investment um, that basically guarantees that let's say if it were, a mall that was going to be built, okay, but 50% of jobs have to go to people in the neighborhood. If it was housing, you could say, okay, but there has to be, you know, 10% of units have to be available to people transitioning out of homelessness or for people who make this much money. And if the developer violates that contract, the community can actually sue um, while the development still happens, and then the community actually receives a benefit and more money to do with what they will. Um, the other thing is land trusts. Land trusts are originally started as a way for um, black communities in places like rural Georgia to collectively own their homes and farmland. So kind of a way to transition out of sharecropping. And we now use it, and we have a land trust here, the City Roots Community Land Trust, um, as a way to ensure community control and permanent affordability. So basically, the community land trust owns the land underneath the home. Um, well, the first-time low-income homebuyer owns the home itself or any other type of property that they own, they also own a um, like a homeless encampment for people who prefer to live outdoors, um, which is pretty cool, like the, the diversity and what they're able to own. So mm-hmm. you can definitely get involved with your local um, land trust. I would say also look for the environmental justice component. If you ever see a big field or something undeveloped or even, like I said before, oh, there's going to be a brownfield cleanup here, um, that, that means that there's going to be development coming into your community, and often you may be entitled to a class action lawsuit if you've been affected by that poisoning. Um, so I would say also learn about your community current community leadership dynamic. Figure out where your next neighborhood meeting is, because I promise you your neighborhood president gets to weigh in on what they think of projects coming in. So that could be your right, too, to diversify the type of voices that the city is hearing from when they make decisions. Add your perspective to that decision-making room or bring other people in who can diversify it. Um, Be proactive in trying to find out about projects before they're already to the point, like that police substation, where they're past the point of community consent. And then you can also volunteer with Habitat for Humanity. Mm-hmm. They do low-income first-time homebuyers. That's super popular. They're a nationwide nationwide program. Everybody has access to that. Um, so those are all ways that you, without being like a complete expert on affordable housing, can get involved in your local movement um, and feel like it's not just all on you as an individual, but know kind of what the players are and how to get your opinion um, mixed into that that mix of voices. Public housing, when the government literally did own housing buildings, started in about 1937. Is kind of a reaction to um, the Great Depression, part of that New Deal, and um, also probably a, like a component of that like muckraking journalism. It also kind of coincided with when we started to see like categories of race. You know how Italian people used to be not white or Polish people or Jewish people used to be not white, Um, it kind of coincided with when we started to think of um, these, like, subcategories, these different, like, ethnic groups within whiteness as becoming white. So when you see that and you see them being mistreated, that's not allowable because now it's actually they are in the category of whiteness and therefore deserving of government compassion. I just want to throw that little (laughs) caveat in. You know, it's always about... um, It it just goes back to, like, oh, well, if white people are poor, surely we did something wrong. They were super segregated. Um, Literally, in the manual of creating public housing, it was, like, you should try to make sure that there's some sort of, like, concrete wall or barrier or, like, a highway separating white and non-white um, settlements so that way we can make sure that these two racial groups are living completely separate lives this is literally de jour or of law um, segregation this is not like well we just think like white people like to live with white people and black people like to live with black people and that's their preference and that's why it is the way it is and who are we to get in the way of that that is not how it was there was literal like create physical barriers and different levels of conditions and accountability to these two different home ownership or not home ownership these two different types of rental properties so world war ii ends everyone's living in this the uh, everyone who's white is living in these beautiful subsidized rental units and they're like we want to move people to home ownership we want to expand the suburbs What are we going to do? Well, the Federal Housing Administration gives out subsidized home loans, especially to returning soldiers, but predominantly to white families. And this, as we know, like owning a home is an incredible way to build your wealth. So, and your inheritance, your generational wealth, what you pass down to your children, whether you pass down debt or wealth. And 98% of these FHA subsidized home loans went to white families. So we've just said, not only are you going to get a home loan, you're getting a subsidized home loan. Sweetie, don't even worry about it. It's going to be so affordable. It will cost less than you're paying in rent right now, even if you're not in public housing. So you start there. Then what do you do? Okay, home loans, home ownership is becoming a thing. How do we decide what is a good credit risk and what is a bad credit risk and who is a good or bad credit risk? So now we have to basically get a little map of the city. We're going to draw lines around all the different neighborhoods. And what we're considering is the quality of housing, the type of housing, and most heavily, the race of the people who live there. This is called redlining. I think a lot of people have heard that word, but this is what it looks like in practice. So if I see white-collar workers, that upper-middle class, um, mostly home ownership. I'm gonna say, okay, I'm gonna rate that A. That is a good investment. We like that. Yes. I'm gonna see um, working class, maybe Jewish Italian people, Puerto Rican people. Oh, gross. I don't like that. But I'm gonna give that a C. That's dangerous. Oh no. And if it's you know mostly the African American, like working poor population, right. oh God, no. We don't wanna to touch that. That what a horrible credit risk. So you're literally trapping people. And and in fairness, not in fairness, but as context, those homes that those working-class, poor, black people lived in were bad. But they were bad because they weren't invested in. And they were bad because there was no home ownership. There was, like, no upkeep. There were slum lords. It was tenement housing. It was awful. So, yeah, they weren't nice properties, but not because of the people who lived there. But at this time, like, that idea of, like, property value and the racial makeup was intricately linked to the point that realtors did this awful, awful thing. Um, It's called blockbusting. And this is when they would pay black people, like let's say they would pay, pay a black mother to push her stroller through a white neighborhood. They would use this as a fear tactic and then post flyers on everybody's door, put them in your mailbox that say, <laughs> this neighborhood is flipping. This is going to become a black neighborhood. Get out while you can. Your property values are going to go totally in the garbage. You need to get out. And the right. white homeowners, because they're racist and they believed it and because they really do think racial and like property characteristics are the same thing, sold their homes to those realtors for way less than they were worth. And the realtors were like, "Well, oh, we really will integrate this neighborhood. We're just going to sell them to first time black home buyers for mm, double what they're worth. So these black homeowners are becoming first time home buyers and they're paying so much. So they're not getting any of that wealth. They're not getting any sort of subsidized home loan. They're totally blocked out. So Then they were subject to racial terror for people who were kind of resisting this um, racial character flip in their neighborhood. And this ranged from, like, physical assault to property destruction, like throwing a brick through the window, to burning crosses in their front yard. The last thing that kind of cemented this was something called racial covenants. These were put on deeds of properties to prevent white families from ever selling to a family of color. So Wegmans did this. A lot of realty developers who are still in business did this, and it was super profitable because you could guarantee the ongoing property value of the home, and it it was literally to the point that it would be like in a homeowners association, like if this needs to have this on here because we, all the homeowners of this area, want to keep our property values high and our neighborhood flooding. So this legacy made it so when non-white people could finally move into a neighborhood with quality housing, they would be paying extremely high rates for properties that were now deemed not credit worthy. So that redlining map would now change because there were now black people in this once white neighborhood. So therefore um, if I am going to give you a mortgage, it's going to be super high interest because you are super risky credit wise to me. Um, So then they're getting that higher mortgage. They're paying all this money for it, so that's cutting into the amount of wealth that they're able to build. And then think about you already are paying so much more, and now you can't afford to actually get, like, a home loan to do the upkeep that this housing that was built between 1910 and the 1940s actually, like, requires. So, yeah, these properties are getting dilapidated because no one will approve your loan to actually be able to maintain them, and you spent all your money paying the interest, if you can even keep it without getting foreclosed on, to just be in this home. So think about that versus the subsidized housing that white people received in the 1940s, and that's where you can kind of see how this generation of wealth inequality, so not income but wealth, what you're able to pass on, any income that you don't earn, is just radically different between, especially white and black families, but also, you know, Latinx families. So that's uh, that's it. Um, generally, uh, I would say 1986 when we talk about LIHTC, that that was when the government realized that they're not going to be able to continue to actually own and manage the properties themselves, and they don't really want to. But yeah, they they and they really stopped investing in that affordable housing once there were no longer white families living in it either. So what, because like white families no longer needed that public housing because they got to have those great subsidized home loans. So that's why you're like, okay, now public housing, I think of it as synonymous of being like for people of a certain race because those people were systemically denied the opportunity to become homeowners. I just want to point out like it's totally in law. Like it is not just like you know some other structural inequality this is that structural inequality it's not this invisible thing it was literal actions it was the actions of every person who had the opportunity to approve a mortgage or approve a home loan for someone who didn't or did it at a much higher rate for no reason other than you know that family's grace
0: well thank you guys so much for joining me for this episode of just the news Please remember to subscribe to my Patreon as well as our Twitter, which is just the pod. <laughs> that would be the at. Uh, and thank you again for listening. I think this was a super educational episode. And thank you again to Jenna so much because I feel like she explained the history of affordable housing about a million times better than I could have ever imagined to do. So thank you again for listening, and I hope you join us next week.